0: So what does it mean to be a dad? I mean, at its core, what does it mean to be the best dad you can be? I mean, a dad's dad. Found you. Sometimes being a dad means you play hide-and-seek before breakfast. you so easy to find. Maybe because I'm three times your size. <laughs> you know, there's more to being a dad than grabbing a menu and wearing socks and sandals and telling bad jokes. Don't talk with your mouth full. Hey, I taught you that. Go wake up your brother, would you? Ryan, dad says to get up. Kids, pancakes! You know, being a dad isn't easy. It's like being under a constant job evaluation with managers who are much, much shorter than you. So we should strive to be the best dad we can be, because being a dad is a gift and a privilege. It's not an inconvenience or a burden. Not lawn care. That's a burden. So let me tell you some things I've learned along the way. Ryan, it's time to get up, buddy. Kids need you to be present. They spell love, T-I-M-E. If you get a chance to jump on the trampoline, go jump on the trampoline. It's not going to kill you. Mm, Probably. Be your kid's biggest encouragement. I love to catch my kids doing something great and I love to be intentional about letting them know that I noticed and here's another one love when it isn't easy Mm -hmm. and even when they're being annoying I try to be slow to anger do I do it perfectly you bet I do not not even close that's why it's important they're not number one right champ he's still asleep it needs to be obvious that my relationship with God comes first And through that relationship, I can gain wisdom and strength and perspective. So don't sweat it. We all mess up. I know I've messed up a lot, and that's okay. The key is when you mess up is to ask for forgiveness. That's what a real dad does. Oh, and the jokes. Got any new ones? Yeah, did you hear the one about the pizza? It's probably too cheesy. Don't forget about the cake.
1: Well, happy Father's Day. I'm going to have all of our... If you're a father here in the room and you're able, I want you to stand up to your feet for a minute. We want to honor you. If you're a father, I know you love this part of the day. This is the best. <laughs> There's a few joys in life. One, of course, is following the Lord, and I'm trusting that all of us men and fathers are doing that. Uh, but the other joy in our life, of course, is to be a husband and a father, and uh, And so we want to celebrate you today. So I have some of our youth that are going to come around and they're going to give you just a little gift and a little token and a little something for your stomach, uh, which is always appreciated. So if our youth can come, find a dad that's standing, pass those out. And then dads, if you can stay standing once you get your gift, So so they're going to work their way around. While they're doing that, we're going to have a little participation here about Father's Day. So I need your feedback. So, I'm going to ask you a question. When is Father's Day celebrated? We're sort off very easy, maybe. When is Father's Day celebrated? Today. That's one answer. What's another answer? Every day? Oh, I like that answer. When, 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 every year we celebrate it when? Oh, I'm hearing a couple of different... The third Sunday in June. All right, so some of us, we just learned something new. The third Sunday in June is when we celebrate Father's Day. Here's a harder one. When was the first Father's Day celebrated in the U.S.? 1697. Dave, how do you know that? (laughs) I will tell you it was in the 1900s. Anybody want to take a guess? 1939, good guess. A little further back than that. 43. 1920, you're getting closer. 15, getting closer. He went a little too far. <laughs> 1910. I heard somebody say 1910. So 1910 was when the first Father's Day was celebrated in the U.S. And then here I want to ask, who in our room today is has been the father for the longest? So think about your kids' ages for a minute. Anybody been a father for more than 50 years? Raise your hand. We have one, two, am I missing anybody? All right, anybody been a father for more than 52 years? i got another hand. You're not, not 50 more, but 52, huh? <laughs> uh, how about 50, 55 years, been a father for 55 years? Let, let, let's find out. So how long have you been a father? Fifties. uh-oh, oh over 50 I mean after 50 you just keep counting you stop counting right how how many years 62 Ron I know you can't beat that but how long (laughs) should I ask D is she here Well, I just want to say to all you fathers, thanks so much for uh, being a fathers. I know none of us are perfect in this room, right? And uh, But we've had the joy of being fathers and raising our kids, and it is a great joy. I want to read this verse to you, and I'm going to pray over you. Romans 15, verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so my prayer today is that you would truly experience the hope and the peace and the joy of Jesus um, as you father. And I know uh, a mother and a father, your job is never done, right? So we're, we're always uh, parenting our kids and uh, encouraging them and loving on them. So let me pray for you, fathers. God, we just want to say thanks so much, first of all, for for being for you being our father. God, you have set the example of what it means to uh, to be a father. And God, we are your children. And God, we are so grateful that you you know us, you love us, you care for us. God, you you go to great extents uh, to demonstrate your love to us. You've done that through your son, Jesus, on the cross. And uh, so, God, we honor our our dads here, our fathers here today. Uh, God, thanks for the blessing of kids. Thanks for the blessing of family. Uh, God, you have created the family unit. And so, God, we want to recognize that. And we just say thanks again for these dads. God, I pray that you would help them to experience the true hope and joy and peace that comes from knowing you. And God, that through that, through the way that they emulate their lives, God, God that others, in their family, their kids, and even others uh, that they encounter, God, would see the true light and love of Christ through them. So God, would you encourage them this week? Would you give them strength for each day? And uh, God, we just uh, say thanks for these dads here at Grace. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Can be seated now.
2: Well, I have some good news. And some bad news. So the bad news for the ladies is, I'm not going to beat up the husbands today. The good news is for the dads. I'm not going to beat up the husbands today. You know, Father's Day is is a tough, tough day. It, it, It ranks in popularity on a survey that I saw this last week of All the holidays that we celebrate, it ranks in popularity number 10. 10. Number one, of course, is Christmas, thankfully. Number two is Mother's Day. Number six is Halloween. And between six and 10, I forget which number it was, is Arbor Day. So what that means, you all know the word arbor, right? Okay, so what that means is trees are more popular than dads. That's just crazy. And then if you measure it monetarily, 25 billion, with a B, billion dollars are spent on Mother's Day for flowers and gifts and meals out. Father's Day 16 billion dollars. And then if you pay attention to the ads that come out in May in preparation for Mother's Day, the ads are highlighted with like $3,000 diamonds. The Father's Day ads include cargo shorts at Target for 11 bucks. So we're going to skip all that Father's Day stuff. We've been in this series on adversity for, it seems like forever, right? And uh, you become very conscious of adversity when we're talking about it every Sunday morning for six or seven weeks. And as we've been going through this series on adversity, I've been making my way reading through the Old Testament and I've been through first and second King, or first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first. And second, I'm in, still in First Chronicles, hoping to get into Second Chronicles this next week. But is that exciting to you? <laughs> second Chronicles. <laughs> what? You clearly have not been reading with me all the genealogies and the names and everything. Um, where was I going? Oh. So as we've been in this series on adversity, learning that adversity is common to all of us. Um, we've learned that the Lord is there and present and cares and helps us through adversity. Hopefully, you've learned that in the last seven or eight weeks, right? But as I've been reading through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and now into Chronicles, one of the things that I've been reminded of is that adversity was a huge part of King David's life. He knew adversity his entire life. And so I want to take you on a journey this morning and take a peek into the life of David. Into a time of the, what I would call the highest point of adversity in his life. And so we want to take a look briefly at the situation that David faced in 2 Samuel chapter 15. That's your clue to open your Bible to second. Samuel chapter fifteen. We're going to take a peek into the, the what I call, what I think of as kind of the the most difficult point of adversity in King David's life. So we're going to we're going to look at the situation he encountered. I want us to consider the stressors that he fled into as these as this situation caused him to flee from Jerusalem, and then we want to finish up after we've looked at the situation he finds himself in and the stressors that he flees to, we want to finally wind up at the stability that David found in the midst of this time of chaos and crisis in his life. And so I'm going to do this morning something that I hate to do, because we're going to... In order to look at 2 Samuel chapter 15, guess what you need to know? Everything that's happened since 1 Samuel chapter 10... And so we're going to do a quick flyover of uh, history and then take this look into David's life. Let me pray and just uh, commit our time together. I saw Jennifer, um, Stephanie rather, I saw Stephanie just walk in um, back from ER. Did you go to ER with Atlas? How's he doing? Okay, well, uh, Stephanie's grandson Atlas fell and uh, hit his head at ER and I just want to remember to pray for him as we commit our time to the Lord. Oh Lord, you are so good to us and so gracious to us and we're grateful and uh, just want to remember Atlas this morning and uh, the family around him. Pray for guidance and wisdom for the doctors as they care for him and pray for your your peace uh, for Stephanie as she trusts you with uh, Atlas's care. Lord, as we look into the life of King David this morning, I pray that you would speak into our hearts, into our lives. Might we discover here the truth that you want us to understand this morning. Thank you for doing that for us as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The central big idea that I want you to kind of wrap your hearts around this morning is that really the secret to enduring adversity, there's many things that we've learned over the last two months, but really the secret to enduring adversity, and we're going to see this in King David's life, is fully submitting yourself to the will of God in the midst of the journey that you're on. So let's talk for a minute about the situation David finds himself in. It goes all the way back to the beginning of King Saul becoming king in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. He becomes king and quickly becomes unkinged by God. Because why? Why does Saul get passed over and David is now anointed as king? It's a big D word. Disobedience. Thank you. He disobeys what God has clearly told him to do. And he does it several times. And God makes the decision in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel to anoint David and he is in preparation now to become king, but he spends the next, if my math is correct as I review this, he spends 14 years running away from King Saul. Saul is jealous, Saul is angry, and Saul wants David dead. David has to dodge a spear at least twice as he runs for his life for 14 years. Saul and David have this this adversarial relationship, and David is on the run. Saul dies, and David becomes king as 2 Samuel opens. And now, as king, David experiences great military victories, great successes, and in 2 Samuel chapter 11, one big, disastrous, sinful time. And that's what? Bathsheba. And the whole story of David's sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him about his sin. And interestingly, as you read there in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan says to David that the consequence of his sin is two things one, the sword will not depart from his house. He will be a man of conflict and warfare and battles. The second judgment upon David for his sin is that trouble is going to arise from his own household. That becomes very important in just a moment. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, we're getting close to chapter 15. We'll be there in a minute, right? So in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel... One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. David does nothing. No response, no reaction, nothing. So, another of David's sons, by the name of Absalom, who's a full brother to Tamar, what does he do? He has Amnon killed. And as a consequence, Absalom flees... And is gone for a number of years. And so as chapter 15 is preparing to open for us, Absalom has been exiled, if you will. And David finally allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but refuses to see him. Won't see him, won't talk to him. Now, there's probably some lessons here for fathers and sons, which really isn't my intention this morning, but we may wind up there in a little bit. And so, as chapter 15 opens up, Absalom finally is allowed audience with David, and he's back in Jerusalem. And as chapter 15 opens, now Absalom is acting like a king. He assembles chariots and horses, and now he sits in the gate of the city as chapter fifteen opens, and he's currying the favor of everybody who comes to Jerusalem. And as chapter fifteen opens, Absalom would greet the person coming and say, You know, if I was the judge, if I was in charge, your your cause is worthy. I would make sure it's taken care of, I would make sure it's addressed. If only I was in charge. The scripture says of Absalom, he stole away the hearts of the people. And so Absalom is preparing to launch a rebellion against his father. And so I want you to take your Bibles now that we've got all that background, right? And I want you to come with me to chapter 15 of Second Samuel. And beginning, I'm going to start in verse 13, and I'm going to read down to through verse 30. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us. And strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him. All the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites, probably the Termites were involved, all the Ites. 600 men who had come with him from Gath, these are like bodyguards, mercenary soldiers. They're not Hebrews, they're not Jews, they're mercenary soldiers, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, probably recently, not literally yesterday. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back to your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for life, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brick Kidron. and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show him both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king said also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimeaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I'm going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered, and as he walked barefoot, then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. I don't know how you would summarize the situation that David finds himself in. But he is under attack by his son. Absalom has gained favor with people. He has formed a large number of followers. He is now prepared to chase David out of Jerusalem and establish himself as king. David is running for his life. (laughs) Is that adversity? That's adversity on multiple levels. Multiple levels that we'll talk about in just a moment. I can't imagine what David was feeling. I can't imagine what he was sensing. He's the king! (laughs) Anointed by God, chosen by God to be the king. Now he's being chased. Chased out out of the city of Jerusalem. And so, as you read the text, he has all these servants that are going with him. Uh, We see the number six hundred one time, and probably my guess would be you could probably easily throw in another two, three, four hundred into the mix. And so, in my mind, I'm seeing David with somewhere between seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, thousand people, getting all these people out of Jerusalem through the gate. Over the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and out into the wilderness. Tuesday night, a couple of weeks ago, our Iron Men gathered for their Bible study. And one of the, one of the things I remember as we looked at this passage and talked about it, Steve jumped in at one point and he said, David is fleeing again. I wrote those words in my notes fleeing again. Fourteen years he ran from Saul and now he's fleeing again from his own son. That's the situation that David found himself in. How much stress would that be on him? On a scale of one to ten, how much stress is that? He's on overload. He's on overload. I don't know what the adversity is that you're experiencing in your life. Maybe you're fortunate enough this week to not have adversity. But whatever the adversity is that you're wrestling with, whatever the adversity that you're facing, whatever the adversity that is happening in your life, maybe you can identify with David a little bit this morning. Overwhelmed, maxed out on overload. And so as I thought about this, that's why I thought of this, the second idea. What are the stressors that David is fleeing to as he runs into the wilderness? What are the different kinds of stress that he's under? And so I created for myself a a list as I thought about this. Um, The first stressor is political. He's the king. He's the military leader. He's the one in charge. And... He's being being humiliated. He's being ousted. He's being chased out of Jerusalem. Stress. Um, Physical stress. He's running for his life. In fact, if you looked at the passages I read, Ittai says to David, I'm sticking with you whether it's for life or for death. They understood the issue. And if I had time, Steve, or Mike rather, I know you don't want me to go and take this extra half hour to go down this other trail, so I'm not going there. But if you want to really measure the stress that David's under, just read chapters 15, 16, and 17. David is stressed. He's experiencing physical stress, running for his life. Emotional stress. Betrayed by his own son. What What kind of stress would that be for you, Dad? Your son betrays you, deceives you, lies to you? How come is it in that film clip we saw, in every clip I ever see, it's always the son that's sleeping in and is always asleep all the time? How come it's never the daughter? Yeah. David is, not only has he been betrayed by his son. But there's a whole other sub-theme that runs through this chapter that I don't want you to miss. Because a guy by the name of Ahithophel, who has been David's trusted confidant, advisor, and friend, changes sides. He leaves David and joins together with Absalom. Trusted friend, confidant, advisor. And if you were to read these scriptures in these three chapters, it says of Ahithophel that when he gave advice, it was like hearing directly from God. Ahithophel switches sides and joins Absalom. And one of the last messages that David hears before he crosses over the Mount of Olives to get out into the wilderness is that his friend Ahithophel has changed sides. That'd be a stressor. By the way, I'll just drop this little nugget in there for you. Who is Ahithophel, really? Well, you know those genealogies that you hate to read? You know those genealogies that when you read them, you just kind of buzz right through them? Well, if you read the genealogies, Ahithophel had a son named Eliam. Nobody recognizes the name Eliam because he was one of David's 30 chief warriors. Eliam was one of David's mighty men. Ahithophel had a son named Eliam and Eliam, according to the genealogies, Eliam had a daughter and her name was Bathsheba. So why did fellow change sides? He's been carrying a grudge against David all this time. And here's an opportunity. And he switches sides and goes with Absalom. David is under stress. Political stress, physical stress, emotional stress. Uh, how about mental stress? He, he has responsibility for all these people. 600, 800, however however many people are with him out into the wilderness. Did you notice the mention of little ones? There's families going. There's children going. If there's families, if there's children going, then guess what? There's mothers going. And they're all in mass with David. Who's responsible for them? Who's responsible to care for them? Who's responsible to make sure they get food and water? David. Oh, there's there's spiritual stress. David has no word from God that I can see in this passage. No direction from God. God has not spoken. And I found myself thinking, if I was David in this situation, I would find myself thinking, where's God? Has he betrayed me and abandoned me too? In fact, if you were paying attention, in this passage of Scripture in chapter 15, where the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to David, as he sends them back to the city with the Ark, he talks about, if I, find, if I have found favor with the Lord. Have you ever wondered that in your life? Is God pleased with me? Is God displeased with me? And sometimes what happens is when the circumstances in your life go south and go bad, guess what conclusion you come to? I'm in disfavor. God doesn't favor me. That's part of, I think that's part of the stress that, that David's dealing with. And then I wonder if there might have been a little bit of personal stress. I wonder if David, as he was fleeing from Absalom, going out across the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, out into the wilderness, I wonder if in the back of his mind, there's a a memory. I wonder if in the back of his mind, he remembers, and he, he, he could close his eyes and could again return to that moment when the prophet Nathan spoke to him after his sin with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan said to him, trouble is going to arise from your own household. And I wonder if David was struck in that moment with again revisiting his sin with Bathsheba, revisiting the consequences of that sin as the child that she bore died, And now here he is, a number of years later, being chased out of town by his son. David is under a lot of stress. In fact, the last verse that I read, verse 30, says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and what did he do? He wept. And I wonder, was he weeping because of the current situation? Or was he weeping because of how it all started back with the sin of Bathsheba? He not only wept as he went up the Mount of Olives, his head was covered and he walked barefoot. All the people who were with him covered their head and went up weeping as they went. The head and the feet... Symbols, signs of deep despair, great sorrow. David is under a lot of stress. Did the difficulties and hardship in your life give you stress? They do in mine. I'm not sure I can fully identify with all that David experienced, but so often it's true that the difficulties and hardships that we encounter in life put us under a burden of stress, overwhelmed, like David even to the point of despair. And if you're not at that point this week in your life, Cheer up. Maybe next week it will be your turn. There's that line in the book of Job that I've been reminded about through our series that man is born unto trouble as the smoke goes up. It's a common lot to have difficulties and challenges and hardships. And more times than not, the difficulties that we have put us under a great deal of stress. And so, I'm reading this chapter. A chapter I have read dozens and dozens of times. A chapter that I have studied intently several times. I have a message that I shared here probably almost five years ago on forgiveness that finds its roots in this story and the story of Ahithophel. I have studied and read this chapter over and over and over again. And so I'm reading it while we're in this series on adversity and two verses jumped out of this passage that I never really paid any attention to before. Two verses just kind of hit me up the side of the head. What is the secret to David having any hope in the midst of this situation? What is the secret to David finding any peace, any stability, any breathing room in the midst of all this adversity? Well, verses 25 and 26 say this. The king said to Zadok, remember the priests are there, they've brought the ark out. David wants him to send it back. Return the ark of God to the city if I find favor in the sight of the Lord. That's a big if, right? That's a big if. He's running for his life, chased by his son. If I have found favor. Does that suggest the possibility that David hasn't found favor? Isn't finding favor? God isn't pleased with him? Is that at least implied as a possibility here? And so David says, If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then He will do what? He'll bring me back and show me both it, the ark, and its habitation where it dwells. But, here's a big but, if He should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, Here's the words I want you to see. Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. What, what's David expressing here? Trust, for sure. Yes, whoever said that word, that T word? He's expressing trust. What else is he expressing? Who said that? Who said that word? Tracy. He is fully expressing submission to what? God's will. May it, may He do to me as seems good to Him. I think I'm guilty of praying more often than not. May He do good as it seems good to Me. (laughs) I'm looking for what's good for me. What's good in my judgment. What's good the way that I look at it. And David says, "May, May he do to me as it seems good to him. And I don't know grammatically that I've got this all figured out. But those words almost sound to me like an imperative, a command. He is fully giving God permission, as if God needs our permission, right? But He's fully giving God His permission to do what? Whatever He wants. And as I locked onto those two verses, it struck me as never before. Here's David running for his life, responsible for all these people, all this stress. And yet his, his attitude that underlies all of these circumstances, all of these events, his attitude, his relationship with God is such that he says to God, here I am. May you do to me as seems good you. Is that an easy place to come in life? No. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of like being in charge. I like being in control. I like being able to t- determine what's going to happen, you know? Um, in fact, I'm kind of wired. To kind of plan ahead, think ahead, reason ahead, and figure out what I can do now to avoid all the potential pitfalls and problems and troubles that may or may not come in the future. I'm kind of wired that way. Anybody else identify with that? You know, that's kind of how I think. And uh, I remember years ago, I was leading a deacons meeting at our church in Long Beach. And after the meeting... Our pastor, Dave Hawking, said to me, Roy, you know, if, if you wouldn't do such a great job of eliminating all the potential pitfalls ahead, you would give up op- greater opportunity for people to dialogue and discuss. Because and, when I was done, there was no, no more questions, nothing to be asked, nothing to be argued. You know, may, maybe you should leave room for some responses. But that's just kind of how I'm wired. I like being in charge. I like being in control. I like being able to determine what's going to happen to me. David's attitude is what? Lord, here I am. May you do to me as it seems good to you. I look back over my life and some of the some of the hard times and the difficult times and whew, I'm not sure that was my attitude all the time. you know what I mean? I'm not sure my mindset was always, you know, do to me as seems good to you. By the way, if you think about it for a minute, probably the greatest example of that attitude was reflected in a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Is that where you are this morning in the midst of your adversity? Not my will, but it's your will. Here I am, Lord. You have sovereign control to do whatever seems good to you. As a little aside for dads, I think there's a lesson to learn here from King David and his conflict with Absalom. What would that lesson be? The video we watched earlier spoke to it. One of the last things he mentioned about being a dad was forgiveness. You see, David never confronted sins of his children. He never dealt with it, discussed it apparently and in the specific example of Absalom and his sin of killing his half brother Amnon David clearly didn't forgive Absalom exiled and when he returned to Jerusalem David would not even see him there's probably some other dad lessons here but that that, that's one that jumped out at me as I thought about Father's Day so adversity, hardship, difficulties, suffering, challenges, whatever you call it, one thing is for sure it ain't fun. Right? It ain't fun. I think it's Chuck Swindoll who has said the problem the problem with every single day is that it's so daily. <laughs> it's just daily. So are you experiencing adversity today? Stressed? Overwhelmed? I lost it this week in the midst of my current adversity. I I was so angry. So angry. I couldn't think straight, see straight, talk straight. I was over the top angry in the midst of adversity. I don't think that's the way God wants me to live my life. Stressed and overwhelmed. And so, can you say with David today, let him do to me as seems good to him. Whether the adversity you're facing is uh, financial adversity, whether it's a physical adversity, We've got some folks here with some physical challenges and physical issues. Whether it's a relational issue, family, friends, whatever. The response of King David is so instructive to me and very helpful. Here I am. You may do to me whatever seems good to you. Can you say that this morning to your, to your Lord? Can you say to King Jesus, here I am, you can do to me whatever seems good to you. Totally submitted to his will, his purposes, and his plans. (laughs) I heard a song on the radio this week. Um, I love Casting Crowns, one of my favorite groups. And they, they have a song, I don't know if it's new or been out for a long time, but it's called Desert Road. And I put a little bit of the words for you in your notes because I want you to be able to take them home with you. But the the song, the, the lyrics to the song say this. I don't want to write this song. That first line I was in on the first line. Yes, I know where this is going to go. I don't want this pain to be my story. I don't want this desert road. Do you? Do you want the desert road? I don't. Are you sure this is the plan that you have for me out here in the dust and clay? God, if there's a bigger picture, it's getting hard to see today. But I know that you won't leave me. I don't know where this is going, but I know who holds my hand. It's not the path I would have chosen, but I'll follow you to the end. You see, that's submission to the will of God. That's saying to God, here I am do to me as seems good to you. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's coming down the track, but whatever it is, Lord, may you do to me as seems good to you. That needs to be the spirit that we adopt every single morning. Lord, thank you for the new day. Thank you for the new morning. Thank you yesterday for the first sunshine I've seen in 6 weeks. But, Lord, in the midst of my day, I want you to know, here I am. You may do to me as it seems good to you. I wonder if that would change how we lived our life tomorrow, the next day, and the day after. Taking our hands off of the steering wheel and saying to the Lord, You're in charge. You're in control. My new car has this feature. It has a button that I can push. And as long as I have a white line on the left and a white line on the right, it keeps my car in that lane. I can take my hands off the steering wheel, and the car stays in the lane all by itself. But... Every so often, I haven't measured it yet, but every so often there's this light that lights up on my dashboard with the message, get your hands back on the steering wheel. And I have to touch the steering wheel and then let go and it's happy again for a few minutes or however long. And then it screams at me again, put your hands back on the steering wheel. I want you to know this morning that when you say to the Lord, Lord, here I am do to me as it seems good to you. And you take your hands off the steering wheel. He's got it. He's not going to tell you to put your hands back on. You're going to want to, right? But he's not going to tell you to. Lord, I'm so grateful this morning for the example of King David. It's often true that we focus on the Kind of the tough times in his life, the bad stuff, his sin with Bathsheba, his sin with the census taking and his struggles of running from Saul. And those just seem like moments of great weakness to us. But I'm grateful this morning for this, this simple statement that he makes. (laughs)
0: Lord,
2: here I am. May you do to me as seems good to you. And Lord, I don't know all the adversities, all the difficulties, all the challenges that our church family is facing. I know some, I know some that need a special touch from you this morning. I know some this morning need a special reminder from you of your love, your presence, your care. And I pray this morning that you would cause in each of our hearts this recognition that was true for King David. Fully submissive, fully submissive to your will, your purpose, your plans. Lord, I don't like desert roads. I don't like them. But if that's your plan, may you do good. Do the good as it seems to you what is good. Lord, increase our faith to trust you, especially during the times of adversity and difficulty and challenge. And so, Lord, we say together this morning, we say together to you, Lord, here I am. May you do to me as seems good to you. And so we trust you together in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.